Welcome to the top. Oh, yeah. 1% show. I'm Paul Salamanca. And I'm Tom Bocard. Thanks for joining us today to learn how some of the top 1% CEOs, sales leaders, coaches, athletes, and other professionals have overcame adversity and built their top 1%er mindset. That's right. And this show is live 6 p.m. Eastern every Thursday. If you want to see one of these shows live, you could go to our home base, which is top1percenter.com. You could also see links to previous episodes there or download the show where all podcasts are available. You can also apply for the Top 1% Academy. It's a private sales network exclusively for top members and a few sales professionals are accepted each quarter to attend the Top 1% Academy. That's also available on top1percenter.com. So Tom, let's get into this next guest, this next show. I'm looking forward to it. Take it from the top, man, 1%. Take it, take it from the top, man, 1%. Take it from the top, man, 1%. All right, welcome to the top. I'm Paul Salamanca, VP of Sales at Security Scorecard, co-founder of the Top 1%er a private sales community here in Bravado. And with me, as usual, our co-host, Tom Bocard, baby senior VP of sales at Global Data. And uh, today we have a very, very special guest, my good friend, Rob Jepson, founder and CEO of Exvoyant. Rob's also a keynote speaker, uh, trainer, host of the Sales Leadership Podcast, which I'm sure many of you listen to. He speaks with top sales and marketing leaders on ways they're being successful, not yesterday, but today. So as you can imagine, Rob is constantly sharpening his sales weapons just on those conversations alone. And prior to Rob founding Exvoyant, he was leading a sales team of over a thousand reps and was responsible for billions in revenue and reporting those numbers to Wall Street. Billions. That's almost as much as Tom Bocard's salary. So <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about how Rob got to the top of his field and specifically what obstacles he had to overcome to make it to the top. But before we get into Rob's story, and I'm very interested in hearing this because all you see about Rob is Rob on stage at, at, at all these conferences, Rob getting all these trophies and awards, but I want to know what Rob had to go through to get on that stage. But Tom, what else do we have on the agenda today? And you just mentioned that you, you don't know much about Rob, but I'm um, curious to get your thoughts. Let's go back and forth here a little bit before we, we dive into Rob's story. Yeah, no, I mean, I figured going through this, you know, since uh, I can't get on Rob's podcast, we got to bring him on ours. So <laughs> We're going to remedy that, that brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. But uh, no, I mean, Paul, I think, well, first we're going to talk about, I think, follow through. You know, uh, some some people in the audience, know, I did the hot sauce challenge yesterday and, and you got one lifeline. You can bring someone on to give you support through it. Right. And I was like, oh, it's got to be my man, Paul. He's got to hook me up. <laughs> that left me there to literally to die. Die. I'm like, all oh, these people are popping in, supporting Nikki and Kyle. And I'm like, oh, what's, what's Paul? What's he going to do? He's gonna I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, dude. The, uh, the five iron was working really well yesterday. <laughs> what you do? You keep the driver in the bag, or you do a? No, man, that was straight dead center for the first time in my life. Every single hole was straight dead center. It was weird. I don't know what was going on yesterday, man. I think well, usually when you you aim 180 degrees left, <laughs> it'll come straight in, right? <laughs> it helps when I'm hitting from the ladies' tee too. <laughs> nice. Um, well, yeah. No, today I guess besides that stuff, um, 
you know, I, I'm really interested to hear some of the adversity that we got, you know, but also just some of the sales leadership tips that, that Rob's come across, some of those tools. I think there's some things that, um, you know, we're all going through now. It's a different world in sales. So it'd be good to, to hop into some of that. Um, and I, I want to hear about the, the coaching that he's been giving you, Paul, and what's going on there, where the tips uh, come from. Speaking of coaching, before we get into that, speaking of coaching, were you able to do your coaching from last session? I, I did remember. it. I did it. I, I got to, uh, I got to coordinate it still. Did that did person you reach out to you? I don't think no. the person reached out Talk. to me unless I missed the message. So talking that's, about follow through and I, right. I'm looking here. I don't see him on the, the attendees. I could be scanning through. All um, right. So P maybe you could bring those names up again. We'll still pick, we'll still pick two. Yeah, we have to double two. up next week. So Rob, at the end of our show, we pick two uh, members from the audience and, and give them a, a a quick one-on-one session uh, nice. the following week. Yeah, so it's been really cool. I'll really, double really, down really on that. If you're going to give someone a one-on-one, I'll do the same thing. Awesome, you guys can pick one. I love I'll, it. I'll, I'll, that. I'll double down, man. You guys each do one. I'll do one. So that's one for each of you. That's two for me for the people who are listening. They're going to listen to us. If I can help, man, you know me, Paul. That's my idea of fun, man. That's my idea of dirty talk, brother. Dude, and I love it because you had a chance to, uh, to talk to Security Scorecard about your company and – um, I wasn't able to attend, but it was some other, you know, sales leaders and, and enablement leaders on the call listening to you. But I, I went on Gong and I listened to, to you in action. And I'm like, man, this guy is good. Really, really good, brother. Thank you. I was well, very impressed. Very, was it very pitch? impressed. Was yes, it, sir. Was it pitching or was it uh, coach mode? No, nah, we, we were selling our software to him. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. We didn't get the okay. deal yet. Not yet. Uh, yeah, that's exactly yet. right. That's part of what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah. That's so part what's of the, the, so Rob, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, we don't want to get too, too deep into where you are today. We know you're successful today, but we, we would like to know, um, like managing over a thousand reps, billions in revenue. And then what made you decide to say, you know what, let's, let's do this on my own. It, you know, it's a great question, and and um, I appreciate it. First of all, thanks to both of you for having me on. I love your show. Yeah, dude. Uh, I think you guys, besides being, like, awesome show, you have to win the award for best podcast theme song. You have to win that award for sure, <laughs> man. <laughs> it's my favorite part of the show. Dude, I, I, are you serious? I got I got song envy every time I hear that, you guys. Yeah, so. that's awesome. <laughs> and Bradley, I don't know if he's in the audience. He pops in once in a while, but he's been getting a lot of love lately. He should do a song for your podcast. Dude, I, I send him my way. I, I need to hire him. So, all right, awesome. Um, so, yeah, I'm. Listen, I'm. I'm. I'm like most people in sales. I mean, Paul, you're one of those guys. I, I know you a little bit. You were always selling stuff, but I did not grow up thinking I was going to be in sales. I I thought I was going to be first baseman for the Dodgers. Uh, you got the wrong hat on, Paul. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I thought that was what I was supposed to be as a first baseman for the Dodgers. And um, and so I. I grew up really competitive and sports were a big part of my life. And uh, I, I kind of fell into it. And one of the reasons I fell in love with sales as I went through a couple of majors in university, I got a marketing degree because there was no such thing as a sales degree. And they cut my teeth in sales and I never, ever used my marketing degree after that. I've been in sales ever since. And one of the reasons I love it so much is I think it's the closest thing to being a professional athlete. Yep. Because you are fighting for everything and one person wins and everyone else loses and there are no participation trophies. Nope. And, um, 
And so the harder you work and the harder you, better you prepare, the better you perform. It's just like when I was on, you know, playing basketball. Uh, I, I found that it was really rewarding. I could see in the very next game, my free throw shooting get better if I worked on it or my handles were better or whatever. Same thing yep. in sales. It gives you almost instant feedback. And, and I love the competition. Like now as a guy who started my own company, that competition helped me. I, I, this is going to be funny when I tell you this. I literally look at competitors as people that are trying to stop me from feeding my family. That's how I look at it. <laughs> like these, these people are trying to make it so my kids can't go to college, right? This person wow. wants to make it so I can't pay my mortgage this month. And yep. with that lens, I, I play a little harder. That's you pretty intense, dude. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's <laughs> Sorry, a pretty intense way of looking at it. One percenters got to do one percenter things. That's right. right. And um, and so, so, did you see that documentary? Uh, was it the last, the last dance with uh, Michael kidding? Jordan? And yeah. you realize, like, you get to the top one percent, you get really good at what you do, um, and it doesn't get boring. But you have to find creative ways to keep that engine going. And I was amazed by how Jordan did that. He would just take little pieces of stories and narrative and just create his own yeah. narrative. That's for sure the best sports documentary I've seen. Now, some people might like, I mean, it's hard for me because I live in Salt Lake City. For those of you who don't know me, I live in Salt Lake City. <laughs> it was like the documentary of the jazz losing again, okay? Yeah. And so, and I still say he pushed off on Brian Russell on that last shot. So, um, <laughs> but, but I fell into sales, man. And um, I'll never forget, like, I, 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 it was a, it's a long story. I'll boil it down into like two minutes or less. I got to represent my university at a national competition. We won this competition. I was set to go to Columbia Law School. I realized when I won this competition, I don't want to go to law school because I can compete in this business area pretty good. You know, this, this EDS, Ross Perot's old company that he sold to Compaq, they only recruit from 40 schools. My school was one, and I, I beat all the other schools coming out of college. Wow. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And uh, so I, I went to a privately held company because I realized – Immediately, I didn't want to go through the rigmarole of rising through. I wanted to get into a place that was over my head that would force me to swim harder than I could swim. And that went pretty well. And about two years after I got out of college, I said, I want to get into enterprise software. And so I landed with a company that did enterprise software. I sold myself into a job I was not qualified for. I had no business yep. getting hired, but I got the job. Now, young dude, not enough experience, certainly not a good enough salesperson. What territory does that sales VP give me? Uh, you're garbage there, right? Eh? Yeah, the garbage one. You ready to hear what? Uh, so I'm selling to financial institutions, needs-based financial planning software to financial institutions. You ready to hear my territory? Yeah. I got New England minus New York and Boston. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to Rhode Island are playing in that field. Yeah, <laughs> like, dude. So, so I'm, in, I'm in Connecticut a lot, right? I, I ended up living in Connecticut a lot. Right? So wow. Simsbury and Hartford and places like that. But this, is, this will tell you the insight to why I think I've had a 1% type career. And what the people that will follow your show, and you're smart. The fact that they watch your show, follow your show, shows that they are wired to be a one percenter. No doubt. When I got the job, I asked him a question that I think you'll find funny. You know, Tom, getting to know you better. Paul, you know me a little bit. You'll, I think you'll laugh when I tell you this. I asked him, how long, what's the record for the fastest person that got a deal done inside your company? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the I answer was. same question, dude. Yeah. Because you're a one percenter. Yeah. And the answer was six months is the fastest anybody's ever sold to a large life insurance company. Okay. And I said, all right. And I told them, because it was, it was, why should I hire you? And I got all these experienced people that I can, I can hire that I have a tracker. I said, if I don't break your record of six months, you can fire me. I won't stick nice. around. 
Okay. And, and I also said, you don't have to give me a draw against commissions. Give me the lame base only. I don't care about your base. I want to sell these big ticket items. I got my first deal done in four months wow. to the Hartford Life Insurance Company, to the, nice. to the antlers. Yeah. yeah. And, and at that point, I was like, I'm never leaving sales, man. And so I rolled through different you know, stuff. I was with a, one of the first SaaS companies before SaaS was cool. Um, I bounced a couple places because I was always trying to say, how do I get opportunity to do something I haven't done? Early in my career, I broke my, I got really great mentorship. Early in my career, find out yep. what you can be best at. Middle 10 years of your career, you know, become the best at it. And then the last 10 years, last third of your, if you go a third, a third, a third, last third year of a uh, third of your career, uh, maximize what you, what you get from it. And, yep. um, and so that's why I said, you know what, I've got to see different markets. I got to see different models. It wasn't for me early in my career, make as much money as you can. For me, it was very intentional. Get as wide a berth of experience as you can. And now that I'm in the kind of later in my career stage, and I look back, I'm super glad I followed that approach. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Wait, so, so Rob, how, how did you, because I mean, like everyone in the early days of sales would look, you know, it's money, right? Like you, you, a lot of people are blinded by that. So how did you have the foresight to to say, I'm going to get the, the rounded experience. And like, I was, dude, I was stupid. I was like any young, I mean, if it was left to me, I would have said, I want the most dollars, but I had a really good mentor that I guess maybe one of the smart things I've done my whole career is for every stage, I have intentionally gone and found people that walked the road that I wanted to walk. You know, it's one of the, again, I think it's another one percenter thing. Don't try and figure it out on your own. Yep. Find people who have walked that road and then learn from them so you can walk that same road faster. And if they're the right mentor, they'll be pumped that you walked it faster than they did. You know, they aren't going to be like guarding their jealous little secrets. If they want to invest in you and help you, heck yeah, they'll be pumped that you, that you walked that road faster than they did. And so Tom, to answer your question, um, I got good advice early and they said, surround yourself with good mentors. And so when I figured out that I wanted to be in sales, cause you got to remember back then, this is like at the year 2000, man. Um, sales wasn't really seen as like a legitimate profession. It was, it was seen differently. Yeah, and really. I, I knew it was going to change because I'll tell you why I saw two companies get sold and I was part of it. And the valuation driver on how those companies got sold every time was what sales were. So yep. I wasn't dumb. I'm like, Oh, well, then if that's the case, sales is not arguably, sales is the most important part of the deal. We didn't get the, the payout based on how awesome our IP was. We got paid out based on how good we were at selling it. And so- um, Dude, you're so right. In the early 2000s, I'm in sales and I'd be at a bar in New York and you know everyone's saying they're in finance, they're doing this. A girl asked me, well, what do you do for a living? I would try to come up with the best answer that ha did not have sales in it. Yeah. So I'd try to do all these things and then I'd wait to see what like her reaction was. I'm like, all right, I got to go back to the drawing board. That did not work. Right. Yeah. So now I would just say I'm in sales. You, you yeah. know how many people I told I was in finance working for JP Morgan? <laughs> but I was selling mortgages for Chase yes. Bank on Long Island. It was oh, so much easier. I wish I wish you, I wish I would have said that. So uh, much easier. Okay. But, dude, but I'm out there slinging mortgages at Chase local banks, like driving up and down the highway in Long That's Island. Awesome. It's like, oh, it's yeah. great. So back then, man, it wasn't now you can get, now the forward-looking schools have like degrees in sales. And I speak at a lot of those schools and I think it's fantastic. And people now are saying, yeah, I want to be in sales when I grow up for a lot of reasons. But um, back then, man, I was lucky, Tom. You asked a great question. Um, I, I saw that that was going to be somewhere. I loved it. I, I just... 
I saw the value in it and I just made a commitment early on. I want to become as widely experienced as possible and I want to help be one of those people that leads the change on how sales is done. And, and what, when I got to that middle third of my career, I realized for me, it was sales leadership. There's a lot of people, there's some awesome sales trainers. There's some awesome sales people. There's lots of great sales tools. I still think the sales leadership side is like that next frontier. I mean, sales leaders are still largely left on their own as both of you guys probably know. Yeah. 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 So, all right, you get into the leadership, you dominate, obviously doing great, responsible responsible for billions in revenue, which is absolutely ridiculous, but that's, that's awesome. I'm sure that wasn't stressful at all. Um, no, that was, that was an interesting deal. The, what got me there was I'd had lots of opportunities to work with and lead small and medium-sized sales teams. And the mentor I had at the time was like, okay, if you want to be a person that can really be influential in sales, you've got to lead a large publicly traded company. And I live in Utah. There was only a couple of options then at the time back then. And yeah. One of them started hiring, tried to hire me because they had bought from me three times and they were hard as hell to sell to. Yeah. And um, they, they said, if you can teach our people how to sell the way you sell, that would be good for us. And they asked for a three-year commit out of me. It was a, to your point, Tom, it was a financial institution. I'm like, I don't see me staying in that world for very long. That isn't who I am. I'm a tech guy. And uh, they asked for a three-year commitment. I thought I was waving my life away, but I actually stayed there 10 years because they gave me the keys to a multi-billion dollar revenue engine and so much adversity in learning how to do that. I mean, there's so many good stories we'll, we'll share, whatever you want to talk about. But yeah, I did it on purpose because I didn't want to be in that industry per se, but I knew I needed to lead a large publicly traded team. And that was the only option I could do without having to move. And as I look back, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. So as let's talk about that. So as you look back, right? Um, what was the kind of moment in your life, could be your career, but in your life where things could have gone the wrong way, things could have been a lot different and you, your willpower was put to the test? So that's a great question. I, I, I could tell you in a pretty successful career, Paul and Tom, almost every victory was preceded by that willpower conversation you're having, yep. okay? And so before I tell you like, what I think is going to be an interesting story for you and your listeners, I'm going to tell you a couple things that I think are good things if you want to be a one percenter. Number one, if you want to be a one percenter, you have to expect resistance. You just have to expect it. Yep. And, and it will come from places that you might not expect. You probably have all heard of crabs in a bucket syndrome, right? And um, when people see you trying to rise above, there are people that will try and pull you down. Okay. They, they, they just, they do. It's, I don't know if it's jealousy, but one percenters are willing to do things that other people either can't or they're not willing to do. It's either they can't or they choose not to. And when they see that happening, it's amazing how much energy people put into trying to stop you. I've had family members become the crabs in a bucket. I've had close friends become the crabs in a bucket. I expect competitors to try and take me down. But the thing that you need to get ready for is sometimes it's people that you don't expect. So here's what I want, Jepson's Laws. Make sure that the people in your circle are also the people in your corner, Okay. Because those people that are in your circle have got to be in your corner. And here's the problem, uh, Tom and Paul. You never know if they're really in your corner until you go through those moments of crisis, those moments of truth, those shitty times. Until you go through those times, you don't know who's in your corner. And so I'm going to, I'll share a story with you. I'm going to use this one at this large organization. 
Um, but I, I, I found that if I'm not finding resistance, then I'm not doing anything meaningful. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's um, almost like when someone tells me that the deal is going to happen and everything is going so smooth. To me, it's not a deal. Like I'm waiting for something to happen. Right. To me, that's I'm ready, ready to overcome it. And if it hasn't happened yet, I give them a heads up. Expect something to go sideways. And, Without and, a doubt, 100%. Right? Yeah, 100%. And so that's the first thing. Adversity sucks when you're in it. But in my experience, I have never had a layup drill, man. In, in, in my, yeah. It just don't have it. Yeah. You got to fight for every single thing you get. And if, you, if you're going to choose a life with as little adversity as possible, then just that means you're going to be an average run of the mill. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the people who listen to this show are the top one percenters. Yep. And that means you're signing up for adversity. I think that's important to say before we even get into the, those adversity stories. I love it, dude. You're getting me amped up, baby. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about, I take that job at that large financial institution. And, you know, I'm, I'm younger, I guess. I'm in my, I'm in my early, almost mid-30s. And uh, yeah, about the, about the mid-30s. And so I'm like, wow, I got this big job and it's kind of cool. And I had no idea what it would be like to report to Wall Street. That's a different kind of adversity. We're going to talk about lots of kinds of adversity in this one experience that, you know, we'll take it wherever you want, guys. But the first one was there were people that worked at this organization that had worked at that organization longer than I was old. Mm -hmm. People that had received their 40-year gold watch already. <laughs> and uh, in, in that organization. Wow. And now I got some 30-something coming in. He's going to tell me what to do. I mean, there was a lot of this waiting for me, right? <laughs> and, but here's a really good, here's how I knew that I was going to be in for a rough ride. I went to one of our kind of outskirt areas because in the first 90 days, my approach was to diagnose before I prescribe and to connect before I try to correct. And so I tried to work and meet in every region possible. And I was in that first 90 days and I went to one of these kind of more smaller outskirt areas. And, um, and I was meeting with a person that was an underperformer and he wanted to meet me at some lunch place. And then we were supposed to go visit clients and I was just going to observe. And I was, I was just seeing how people did the job, slinging mortgages and stuff like that, like you said, Tom. And I was in observe mode, man. I wasn't in talk mode. I was in observe mode. And so I'm getting down and I meet this guy and he says, um, he says, oh, so what do you really want to do here? I'm like, honestly, I just want to learn how you do the job because you'll forget. I mean, you'll forget more about your job than when you sleep at night than I'll know. I'm not here to tell you how to do that job. I'm just here on the sales side. And um, he's like, great, then pull your notebook out. I'll give you a really good, you know, some ways you can really help me. And, and I'm like, stupid. I pull out my notebook. I open it up. I get my pen. I'm ready to rock and roll. And he's like, okay, write this down. You ready? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, quit your job. Go back to tech and leave me the hell alone. <laughs> and I'm the, I'm the chief sales officer. And, um, and I'm sitting there, as he says, I literally started writing the word quit before I realized he was messing with me. Oh, man. <laughs> Shut my book, put it down. And, and so, so now you have, so you have this leadership challenge. So in, in that moment, right? So now you're basically this, this guy's boss. Three levels above him. Three levels above him. First yeah. time you're meeting him in person? Yes. So he says this to you, which is very ballsy, <laughs> right? Um, so now how do you, as a leader, how do you react in that situation? So this moment was the impetus for me creating Jepson's 20 laws of leadership. Okay. 
And, and leadership law number one came from this experience. And here's what leadership law number one is. Not everybody likes you, okay? And you just have to know that. Not everybody likes you. And a lot of leaders, they want so desperately to be liked. And um, so I could have easily said, you're going to talk to me like that? I could have made his life hell. But what would that have done to my ability to lead that organization? How fast would that word have traveled if I slit his throat for being an, being an ass to me, Right. I would have crippled myself forever. So I had to, I had to have a, um, this is when I started, like, I realized, so that's the, the second, so in that first law, not everybody loves you. You have a love group, you have a hate group, and you have the swing group. And so the way I learned to handle this is I really got strategic. I said, okay, there are some people that are really pumped that I'm here. Now I'm realizing there's some people that are pissed off that I'm here. But the larger group's in the middle, and they don't know what to think about me. Either because, A, they don't know me, so they don't know if I'm any good or not. And B, they don't know if they can trust me. So what I'm not going to do is make it so when the word travels on how I handle hate group person, uh, I left that meeting saying, I need tactics and strategies for the hate group. I have eight of them now. I have eight yep. tactics and strategies for the hate group. And, um, and so with so, that guy, I used humor that day. I used humor. And um, I made him in laugh. In that moment? In that moment, right? Because there's a lot. I could, I could see that. There's a lot going on probably in your mind because you probably oh, yeah. feel that anger, but you're like, all right, let me address this in a way a leader should address it. But at the same time, you want to still establish that, that leadership kind of quality. You're three levels above them and you, you can't make it okay for someone to talk to you like that. Like, how would you react? How did you react in that? Exactly? Here's how I reacted. I, I laughed and I said, Bill, I, 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 said, I said, Bill, tell me how you really feel, man. And, uh, and, and he, he was a little nervous. Once it came out, you could tell he was a little nervous. I said, you know what? No problem, man. Um, I said, you know, I guess the, I guess about at this point, the only thing I can do to be helpful to you is pick up the tab for lunch. Right. And, um, and it softened things a little bit. Yeah. It made him soften. He realized he was out of line. He realized he was stupid. And, uh, so as we ate, I'm like, listen, so what calls do you have set up? And it turns out he didn't have any calls set up for us. And, um, and so we took a different path that way. And I just don't turn it into like an interview. Tell me what's helped you stay here successfully for 40 years. Tell me what's been for What I didn't tell him is you're already on the list. Cause when I diagnose, I meet only with two categories, the highest performers, the one percenters and the lowest performers, the bottom 10%. And I do an analysis of variance where I see what makes those two different. I was there to meet with him and I got what I wanted already. He had no calls set up. He had no interest in improving and he had no interest in being led. He just wanted to be left alone. That yeah. told me everything I needed to know. And so the real conversation happened with his boss later on. And so yeah. me having that fight. But let me tell you why that was so cool. Earlier in my career, in the first company I founded, it was a company called Allegiance. Um, I, was, I was way too heavy-handed and I was ego-driven and it was all about me. And I lost people because of me. And I left that job. Um, and I made it, that's when I like had a conscious awareness. I had to work on my leadership game. And so I, I'd done a lot of work with a new mentor who was a business partner with me at Exploit, Dr. Gary Rhodes. And he invested a ton of time helping me learn to be a good sales, not a good sales leader, a good leader. And so when that moment happened, I'm grateful that I, old me, old Rob would have gotten this close to him and would, would, but I would have done something stupid that would have undermined yep. me. But because I worked on that, because I'd sucked at that earlier in my career, that ended up being not a negative as much. And uh, with the hate group, I'm just going to tell for our li li listeners that are wondering, you know, what are those things with the hate group? 
Don't plan on winning the hate group over. It's a waste of time. All you want to do with the hate group is neutralize them. Neutralize you want to make it so when they start to have the, because they'll never try and, and hurt you in front of other people. They, they try to hurt you at the water cooler. Now on the Zoom yeah. day, they, they, they hurt you on the private chats that they have, right? And uh, so I just wanted to neutralize them. And, and um, But I, that led to a different challenge, Paul and Tom, because I remember leaving that going, holy cow, is this how it's going to be? Do I really want to be here? Because I had lots of opportunities to go back to tech. The only reason I was there was so I could lead a, a large publicly traded company. And, and that was the, your first meeting? That was the first time. Well, I, I, I was like in day 45, and I'd had yeah. some people resist, but this guy was just like in my face. Like, yep. And I was like, if one person's saying that, how many more are there? Yeah. And it's yeah. easy so to say. Now self-doubt starts creeping in? Yeah. Say, say that again, Paul? Self-doubt starts creeping oh. in? Yeah, that whole drive, that was like two-hour drive back to where I needed to go after that. That drive was like, do I really want to do this? You know, and, and, and more of that, it was like, can I do this? Can I? Yeah. Can I do this? And, um, and so that's the first thing that, again, as I look backwards, that was a soul, kind of a soul-searching, soul-kind-of-sucking day for me because I'm a pretty extroverted guy. I'm in the communication styles, I, I, I'm one of those people that's pretty assertive, but also I want people to all be on board. And, and I, I, I kind of see myself as a motivator, motivator and I, I try to be an inspirational type leader, but you, you can't force someone. And I left going, how many people like that are there? And, um, and, and yeah, I, I self-doubted. I got really nervous. I wondered if I should have just, you know, I said, yeah, I gave him a three-year commit, but Maybe I'll just pull the plug right now and I'll go back to tech. But the only reason I was doing it, it wasn't because I loved the industry. It was because I needed to lead a large publicly traded company. And, and, uh, and so I, what I didn't realize was how, lar- how much a large potential hate group, because if you have like 20% love group and 20% hate group at 60% swing group, and it's a thousand people, that means there's 200 people that hate your guts. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. Do you see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's that like uh, it's like you get some trolls on LinkedIn for no reason, even though they make comments that absolutely make no sense. You're like, dude, that's still like it bothers you. Like, it why, does. why yes. is this person trolling? Does he it have something better to do? Yeah. Yeah, it uh, sucks. You get a thousand people that compliment you today, but the one person that says something neg, that stays with you. And that's yeah. the thing yeah. they stick. And it's like, why? That's just, but that's, it's human nature. I think you kind of, you so know, you, I, I'm sorry, Tom. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, because I mean, build on this. Build on this with me, Tom. On, on this moment right here. So, so Rob driving back from that meeting, he starts getting uh, a couple of thoughts that probably compound. Right, the more you start doubting yourself, the stronger that momentum becomes. Yeah. The stronger your thoughts become. The more that affects your feelings. So, how long did that last? Is it during that ride? Did you stop that? How are you pivoting no. now? I sucked, man. I wasn't, I wasn't mentally strong enough. I've since learned that men, you know, mindset is the most important thing that any of us have to work on. And uh, so now when I work with leaders, it's always mindset, skill set, performance. And most people are only thinking about performance. Yep. And so for me, it's mindset, skill set, performance. And um, it's amazing how important that is. It, it stayed for a long time, Paul and Tom, and it caused me to not be all in. It caused What's me to not be time? a one percenter. A couple weeks, a month. Oh no, it was it was it was a couple months that you know I got nervous to go and there's a lot of things. I, I 
remember, I, I'd never been in that industry before. And I, I, I was nervous. I'm like, you know, I'm great at the sales part. I'm great at the sales process part. I know that. I don't hope that doesn't come across as cocky. But on the industry, I'm like, I don't know the ins and outs. And, and, uh, and, and, the, and to compound it, I wasn't allowed to be part of the big boy reporting for the Wall Street guys for a long time because I couldn't speak the language. Yeah. And they did not want me going in there and speaking that language and saying, who is this guy? Yeah. And so, you know, there was a lot of things that would reinforce, you know, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. You don't belong here. And it did. It took about three years before I really was like crisp. And, uh, and now today, one of the industries that I do the most work in is financial institutions because of that long stint over there. And you guys know that whenever you're looking at vertical markets, financial institutions is one of the most important ones. Oh yeah. And if I hadn't done that, my, my career today would be way, way different. So it was hard, Paul. I, those, when they're real things to be concerned, I was so focused on the worry rather than the, so what I'm going to do about it, that I was, I was focusing on problems that didn't even exist. It was like, well, what if they say this? What if about this? Yeah, of course. It affects, it affects your state of being. And then what are you doing now at this point? Like, so it it lasts a couple of months. When do you say enough is enough? Because that could kill your career. That could kill your job, right? If you keep, I'm surprised you let it go on that long and still turn a 10-year career out of it, yeah. very successful 10-year career out of it. I wish I could tell you I was better, man. I mean, it was a lesson I had to learn, bro. And um, I, I did. I second-guessed all the time. And and uh, and that three-year commit was just weighing on my head, man. And I was just focusing on responsibility instead of opportunity. And that's what switched for me. What's the, I came here for an opportunity. What is the opportunity? And I, I had like this meaningful moment where it was wait to worry. That's one of my things now, wait to worry. I'll ask you this, you know, Paul, Tom, you know, three years ago, what was the biggest, what were you most worried about? Yeah. Three years ago, I had a yeah. uh, first kid on the way. Okay. And so that's, that's a significant life event. So I can see why someone, I had, I had a mentor ask me that. Rob, what were you most worried about three years ago, five years ago, whatever? I'm like, I have no clue. And I'm like, see, don't spend all the energy on things you won't even remember two, three, five <laughs> years from now. Instead, focus on the opportunities because I promise you, you will remember those. And so um, that's, that's what I like intentionally did. And I intentionally flipped that on and I had good people around me. And that's the other thing is I... I did have the sense to engineer some quick wins. Uh, when you're facing adversity, one of the best pieces of advice I can give the listeners is find a quick win. It doesn't have to be a big I love win. It. I love a it. quick win. I right? love it. And you, you know, said I a couple a, of things too um, earlier on, that six-month mark. Yeah. When I was a rep in SaaS or longer enterprise sales cycle, I knew if you didn't sell anything by six months – you probably get fired. Right? There's some sure. people that maybe extend past that, but at least you should, if you didn't sell anything by six months, you should have a very healthy pipeline and things will start to trickle. So I saw that my first, one of my first jobs, the guy was there for six, seven months, didn't really sell anything. Pipeline was weak. And I was like, all right, I don't want to be that guy. Um, so now every time after that, I went into a sales gig, I said in my head, all right, six months is my kind of cushion but like you, Rob, I want to break the record. Yeah. What was the quickest way? What was the quickest deal someone ever did? I want to do that. So I had two both sides of it. 
shit hits the shit hits the fan. And for whatever reason, things aren't going my way right away. I'm building pipe. I have six months, but that's not me. I, w- I want to get on the board and get a quick win as quickly as possible. What about you, Tom? What are you thinking about when you're coming into a new gig? But you've been at Global Data for, for 25 years, right? Since you were uh, 50 or yeah. something? Yeah, when I first out of middle school, came into uh, Global Data. <laughs> now, it's been, it's eight years for me, but it's it's a constant evolution, which is why I've stayed because it's, it's taking over different teams or building new teams from that. And like, I feel some of those elements every time when you take over an existing team, you have those challenges and it's like, you got to get those quick wins. For me, I look at it. It's like, I need a quick win within the first you know, month. You know, and some of them you manufacture and it's not necessarily like, Oh, I'm helping them close a deal. Yeah. I want to help people close deals as quick as possible or give them some tactics. So they see that because that builds that trust, that respect. They might not like me, but they'll respect it. And they know that, you know what you're saying, but that was one of the things I was curious about, Rob, because I've been in those situations where that self-doubt creeped in. And not only is it kind of like weighed down to just the, the confidence in that, but it, I've seen, I've stopped doing some of the standard things that I do. So you, start, you start acting differently. Right. You know, so, so like, I guess what was the kind of the light switch when you flipped out of it? So I, I get the, the change of thought, but how did you start changing your routine and your actions, you know? So this is really good. That's why, again, so that's why to me, so I sucked in chemistry and biology and stuff like that. There's a reason I'm in sales, man. Okay. Um, but think of the triple helix of a DNA molecule, right? You got those, those three strands, the, the, the strands of the one percenter DNA. You ready? Mindset, skill set, and performance. And so the first thing I had to do is get over those doubts. Then the second thing I had to do was act differently. The third thing I had to do was then combine those things in a way that put me on a predictable path. Now, to answer your question, because I, I, I have this diagram I use when I'm doing my personal coaching stuff about the DNA of predictable performance, mindset, skill set, performance. And I had a basketball coach. I'm sorry to go back to sports. I hope it's okay, you guys. But he said, a championship season starts with one great game. Right, you can go on a championship run with just one great game. Yep. Right? I think of some of these teams that have made runs in the NCAA tournament where you got to win six games, right? And one great game, they peak at the right time, you can have a championship season. Okay, and so I had that in my mind as I was trying to get through this. I need one great game. I just I don't need to have ten great years. I got to have one great game, and so I can do that. Like I can do anything once, Tom. Right? I, I don't care what it is. I can do it once. And so um, I started looking, where do I find wins? And so that, again, back to my leadership kind of theory that I have on love groups, swing group, hate group, neutralize the hate group, but you want to amplify the love group. So what did I do? I started spending, I got done with that diagnostic phase and I found people that were in my love group that had room to improve. They might not have been as high up and I focused on them first. They got me some quick wins. They were easy to work with. They were excited to be part of something uh, and and I, with with as many as we had there, it was easy for me to find uh, the other mid level managers that wanted to have that. So I I found quick wins from people in the love group, and then we amplified that to the swing group. That's how you went over the swing group. They learned to trust you and to trust what you're bringing because you amplify what happens to the people that are having success. And then they really don't want to listen to hate group ever again. And yeah. so my mindset had to be right. And then I got focused, Tom, on championship seasons can start with one great game. And I, that was what I did. I woke up, said, this is what a win looks like. I'm going to get that win. Whatever I have to do, I'm going to get that win. And, um, and that's how I started doing it. And I slowly started stringing some days together 
And then we started having some success stories. And it wasn't just one. In fact, I got to tell you one more great story. I'm sorry. This was yep. one I really wanted to share. Yeah, yeah. success breeds success. Yes. yes. So there was a guy, another old timer that had been in the bank longer uh, than I was alive. Okay. I mean, he was, he was an old dude, but he was a great dude. He was like, he ran the fire department. He was like a volunteer fire chief at, at this little city, you know, and just a great guy. And he was known for being super outspoken. So this is a great story. I, I'm so excited to share this with you. I went to him. I said, Lynn, listen, I know you don't like the whole idea of what I do here. Told him that. And that put him kind of goes, oh, no, no, Rob, you're a good guy. I just think that we don't need all this structure around sales. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been successful forever by hiring the best people and just getting out of their way, which in the old days, that is what you did. But in the modern sales era, that does not work. Okay. And, um, and I said, listen, I need you to be one of my guys. So will you make a deal with me? And he's like, okay, what's the deal? I said, you and me pick two people on your team that you want and need the most help with. We are going to coach them together. We're going to walk them through this together. If my stuff doesn't work, I will leave and I will not come back. But if this process that we've built does work, I need you to be the one who goes around the bank with me to all the regions and you tell them that it worked, not me. <laughs> and where was this guy? Yes. He, was, he was one level below? Or he yeah, was he, was, a- he was one level below. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he was super respected across the bank because they all knew he was a no BS guy. That's smart. He, and so I said, will you make that deal with me? And he's like, I will. And um, so I doubled down with that guy. And, um, and we had so much success. And then when that happened, I looked at him and said, Lynn, you know what this means? He's like, I know. I got to travel with you now, right? I'm like, yep. <laughs> I'm going to have my admin start booking tickets. And you got to say yes. You can't tell me you got meetings. You're coming with me, man. And so we set this road show up where we showed the success story and that that transformed everything because That's that led awesome. to law number three. So uh, Jepson's law, I told you Jepson's law one, not everybody likes you. Jepson's law three, leaders on pedestals make easy targets. And so I did not want to put myself up on the pedestal. I wanted to put those other people one and two levels below me up on the pedestal and help them put their reps up on the pedestal and have me be in the background. Cause I was the architect, man. I didn't need to be on that stupid pedestal. Yeah. And, um, and so by I staying off the pedestal, no one took shots at me anymore. That's great, man. What You had like four or five awesome stories in this one conversation alone. Uh, I love it. We, so we had a chance to look a little deeper into how Rob overcame adversity in his journey and how he builds a top 1%er mentality. Mindset, skill set, performance. And make sure you're not around those crabs to drag you down in that bucket. Really enjoyed you on the show, Rob. So I want to, I want to thank everyone for joining Rob Jepson, Tom Bocard, and myself, Paul Salamanca today. We'll see you again next Thursday at 6 p.m. As a wise man, Nas once said, why shoot the breeze about it when you can be about it? But one last question for you, Rob, before leaving. Um, I don't know what, let me see. I usually, the last question tends to be different every time. Rob, uh, Tom, do you want to take a stab at, at throwing out a last question here? So, yeah. Hold on I mean, one you, second, Pete. You mentioned Dodgers, Dodgers fan, Rob, yes, right? Sir. All right. So true blue, true blue, baby. So Brooklyn, we talking Brooklyn Dodgers too? We go back that far? I have a signed hat from 1947 uh, from one of Jackie Robinson's teammates uh, in his in his rookie year. So, oh, nice. Yeah. That's wow. awesome. 
I'm an LA Dodger, bro. I'm an that LA Dodger. Awesome. Let's be LA honest. Dodger. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're West Coast, but I mean, I guess so. With that end, you know, any any baseball jersey that you could have, what what numbers on the back of that? You're looking at. That's a hard question. That is a super hard question. It's not a very fair one. I think I would take Kirk Gibson Dodgers jersey. Uh, Gibby's my favorite Dodger. Gibby running around those bases. Yeah. Right. What's uh? What was his number again? I don't remember. Honestly, I don't know. No. Well, when I was a kid, it was Steve Garvey. Jersey. It was six. Kershaw's twenty-two, but he can't win down the clutch, man. So we've lost too many games with him on the bump in the uh, playoffs. Gibson was twenty-three. Twenty-three. All right. Cheers to twenty-three. Well, well, Tom, what what number would you pick if you had a if you had a Brooklyn Dodgers jersey? What what number I mean, would you pick? Brooklyn, Brooklyn, and then I'll pick I one. Gotta go with Jackie Robinson. Yeah, forty-two. Yeah, forty-two. Forty-two. And what would you and, do? I would do um, 19, baby. 1942. Oh! <laughs> that was a go. great lead in, baby. That was a great lead in, Tom. Welcome to the top. Oh, yeah. We killing annual quotas. It's the one percenter show. In case you haven't noticed, we talking cold calling and sales and start with tight rhymes. Round here, we maintaining a four times pipeline.